Good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast, Dr. Gupta. Thank you so much for coming and joining us this morning. You are so welcome. So for our new listeners out there, my name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a women's healthcare specialist, and this is Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We talk about all the issues that pertain to women's health in and around pregnancy. We talk about the problems and how we can make the problems better. Today we have Dr. Gupta. Dr. Gupta is a blood specialist. How will you describe your specialization, Dr. Gupta? Well, my specialization is hematology and oncology. So it's two different parts. Oncology, of course, deals with cancer. And then hematology with, deals with blood disorders. And that includes anemia, that includes abnormal bleeding or blood clots. And many of my patients really do not have cancer. They just have blood problems. If I have a pregnant woman in front of me, you know, just feeling tired, just feeling run down, memory problems, muscle aches and weakness, it comes to my mind that, you know, she might be anemic. And this is a condition that can be found in half a billion reproductive aged women over the world. Dr. Gupta, if there is a pregnant woman out there that I'm entertaining this diagnosis, what will she be feeling? What are all the things that she will report as the symptoms that she's having? And how do you diagnose or name this condition? So for any woman, whether pregnant or not, if she's anemic, she'll be feeling more tired, just not able to do her usual activities, having to take more breaks, reports more swelling of her legs, and just get short of breath when she tries to walk, especially upstairs. She may have palpitations or pounding of her heart when she is walking or exerting. Her skin may be a little paler than usual. These are the common symptoms. So anemia is basically a shortage of red blood cells. And this may have many causes, from outside factors to inherited factors. Or it could be the side effect of an illness or treatment. But essentially, it means that the body does not produce red cells at the correct rate or the body is breaking down the red cells faster than they should. And we measure this with a factor called hemoglobin. Can you explain just in layman's terms, what is hemoglobin? What does it do? How does it help in, you know, just existence? So the hemoglobin is so important for our normal functioning. It's made of two different parts, heme and globin. And the main function is actually carry oxygen. Oxygen is essential to all our cells, all our tissues. And if you don't have enough hemoglobin, you're not able to carry enough oxygen. And that puts a strain on those cells. They become hypoxic, not enough oxygen, and they tire out. They are not able to function normally. So, if a pregnant woman, she has another human growing inside her and this is changing, making her need more hemoglobin, more iron to feed this growing human. Because in pregnancy, we know that there's more blood in the woman's system. The blood volume increases 
and then the the size of the red cells they also increase but they don't increase as much as the blood volume so that means that when we actually now start counting doing the hemoglobin it appears low and women generally have about 2.3 grams of total iron in their bodies and during pregnancy they need additional about 1 gram additional iron so they need this iron because there's a baby there's a placenta and then when it's time to deliver they're going to have some blood loss which includes iron hemoglobin loss what determines the total amount of iron in one's body and how can a woman prevent having anemia or low iron when she's pregnant yeah this actually has to be dealt before she becomes pregnant she needs to be not anemic and the most common reason for being anemic is actually menstrual blood loss so if that is under control if the diet is a good diet now the iron comes in two different parts one is heme iron and one is non heme iron so one is heme iron is all coming from the animal products from the blood so the diet has to be rich in meat or uh, meat products or if not then the non heme iron comes into play which is from plant sources so she needs to be checked out and make sure that her hemoglobin is normal or if not normal then it needs to be corrected so this particular hemoglobin it's actually a protein right dr gupta it's a protein and hemoglobin is a protein in the red blood cells that carries oxygen to the tissues correct during pregnancy we need to get more hemoglobin so that we can get more oxygen to the tissues of ourselves and of the baby okay and if we don't have enough iron stores like you said before pregnancy or we don't get enough iron during pregnancy then we develop anemia and we don't have a lot of oxygen going to the baby how could the low iron affect the unborn child well the low hemoglobin can affect both the mother and the child so if you look at the mother what is called severe maternal morbidity so the risk is almost doubled for the mother to have uh, preeclampsia have need blood transfusion support to need icu admission during the labor and even the risk of hysterectomy is increased now if you look at the baby the baby has increased risk of uh, preterm delivery increased risk of fetal distress increased risk of icu admissions has low birth weight and may even affect the brain development and have lower cognitive function So just like you said, you know, severe iron deficiency anemia during pregnancy for the baby, it increases the risk of premature birth. That is this baby is coming before 37 completed weeks of pregnancy or the baby can have a low birth weight because there's just not enough oxygen going to the baby or even the mom can have complications that might require blood transfusion or even postpartum depression correct during the last half of pregnancy the body makes a lot of blood cells you know just to increase the supply in preparation for delivery every red blood cell uses iron as its core 
Why do we need to take iron? Why can't our bodies just make it as a nutrient? Why do we need to take supplemental iron? Well, the iron is an element, so it's not something that can be made in the body. It has to be brought inside the body, and that can be through plant source, non-heme iron, or through heme iron, which is from the animals. So it's not something the body can make on its own. And there is a continuous loss of iron from the body, especially in menstruating women, and also women or even men who have GI problems like ulcerative colitis where the turnover is more of the cells lining the GI tract or the cells lining the skin. If they have a lot of skin problems like eczema or psoriasis, they can lose a lot more iron than normal. So, you know, you talked about just some ways in which we can get the iron into our bodies. And for us, we think prevention, prevention, prevention is very important. Before the woman gets pregnant, if she can make sure that she does not have anemia prior to pregnancy. You talked about eating some iron-rich foods like in meat, in chicken, in fish, in eggs, in dried beans, and fortified grains. And this form of iron, you called the heme iron, the one in the meat products, right? Right. And you also talked about the iron in vegetables, that eating foods rich in folic acids, dried beans, dark leafy vegetables, especially for people that are not meat eaters, can help increase their iron. What are some of the other things that you can eat to help? Because once you start ingesting the iron, it has to be absorbed into your body. Right. What are some of the things that can prevent the iron from being absorbed? And what are some of the things that can enhance the absorption of iron into your body? Yeah, so the good sources of non-meat iron sources is a fortified cereal. It can be raisins, apricots spinach, kale, and nuts, seeds, and vitamin C, acidity can help absorption more. So like in orange juice, maybe? Yeah, taking it with orange juice. Or if you're taking something that works against your acid, like Nexium or Pepsid, these can affect iron absorption. If you're taking milk, that can lower the iron absorption. Do you mean taking milk, using milk to ingest the iron, drinking milk and taking the tablet at the same time? At the same time will decrease the absorption of iron. So there should be at least a two-hour gap between drinking milk and taking the iron tablets. So vitamin C in orange juice will promote the absorption. If you take the pill with orange juice, it promotes absorption. And things like drinking your tablet with milk decreases the absorption of iron. Yes, correct. And if the lady has had bypass procedure for weight loss, that will reduce the absorption because there is not enough acid and not enough stomach. So women that have had gastric bypass procedures might have a lower ability to absorb iron into their systems. Exactly, yes. And you did mention some fruits and vegetables that are high in iron. Can you please just re-educate us on that? Yes, sure. So any green leafy vegetables like spinach or kale, seeds, legumes like lentils, 
especially like raisins and apricots. And if you have uh, like soybeans, whole grains, and uh, fortified cereal. Every nutrient has a recommended daily allowance. And we know that in pregnancy, the recommended daily allowance for iron is about 30 milligrams. So in pregnant women, once we see low iron, in addition to all these nutritional modifications, eat this, eat that, we also give them prenatal vitamins with iron. And there's several different kinds of prenatal vitamins with iron. Which one would you say would be more tolerable to maybe preventing side effects of nausea or maybe even constipation for a pregnant woman? Yeah, so as you know, the main side effect of taking iron supplements, iron tablets, is constipation. Although some do have diarrhea, just the opposite of that. And it can cause uh, reflux and heartburn and abdominal cramps. As far as which preparation is better, actually all of them will do the same thing because the main thing is the iron that your body is taking. So iron will do what it does. So there's not a big difference between different preparations. And most common is uh, ferrous sulfate, which is, I think, just as good as anything else. There are some uh, iron preparations which are uh, slow release. Those are not good ones because if you're taking a slow release that's going through your stomach into your small bowel where it's being released but it's not being absorbed. So it should not be a slow release or long-acting form of iron tablet. Now if you know, a woman is eating all these green leafy vegetables or for people that eat meat, she's eating the lean meat and taking her multivitamins and iron supplementation. And she goes to her provider and they check the hemoglobin level and it's just not coming up. It seems like there's a failure to respond to iron therapy. And maybe for a pregnant woman, she's coming close to the time of delivery in which we know there's going to be some blood loss, you know, just with delivering a baby. How do we manage what appears to be a presumed failure to respond to iron therapy? So actually the amount of iron in uh, non-meat products or plant products is not that much. So it's not very practical or reasonable to expect if you have iron deficiency that that will be corrected just by plant source of iron. So most of the time you have to have iron supplementation. Now that can be done either with pills, if there is enough time, because that will take longer, or it can be given, iron can be given like an injection through the IV. Now the IV iron is not recommended in the first trimester of pregnancy, but it's safe in second and third trimester. And there are some old iron preparations like uh, infed that we don't give IV. And uh, the newer preparations are pretty safe, except one of them, which is called Ferliset, because it has uh, benzyl alcohol as a preservative and there is a potential for fetal harm. So we, we do not use that one. And also, if they fail to respond, you know, as a pregnant woman, we have determined that they are compliant because at times the iron is just not palatable and the women are not taking it or it's causing too much constipation. So I know for me, I want to first of all decide that they are compliant. I want to make sure that they're not taking it with antacids, like you said, that is 
affecting the absorption. And then I probably would send them to maybe GI to see if there's something else going on. Would that be a right thing to do? I think if they are having some symptoms to suggest that there may be another problem, if they are having heartburn, abdominal cramps, if they are, especially if they are losing blood in their stools, then that would be a good reason to get a GI evaluation. But I think overall, if they are young and pregnant and they've had multiple pregnancies and they've had excessive blood loss with their with their menstrual cycles, so in those cases, you're kind of assuming with a high prediction that it's all from blood loss and that maybe just replacement of iron is important. So, you know, we talked about, okay, this lady, she's feeling tired, she's she can't complete tasks, she's just anemic. We've talked to her about changing your diet, eat iron-rich foods, and we've talked about how to take the iron medications when we actually prescribe the iron tablets in such a way that it's properly absorbed. And we've talked to her, make sure she's taking it, and we know that there's nothing else going on. And the iron is still low. What is the rule of blood transfusion in a pregnant woman with very low iron? Well, the blood transfusion we like to avoid as much as we can because that's a temporary relief because the blood you're transfusing is going to help. But whenever the lifespan or the red blood cells is is gone, that blood is going to be gone from the body. And the lifespan is about 120 days of red blood cells. About three months, right? Uh, yeah, four, four months. Four months. Yeah. Yes. So that's not an ideal solution. If it's an emergency and it has to be corrected, then yes, it's a good solution. But more important is to correct the underlying reason, underlying cause. If it's low iron, then iron needs to be replaced. And one other thing is about what you were saying about when if the person is compliant, sometimes you have to back off the iron supplement. If it's causing a lot of side effects, you can give it every other day. And if you give it two times a day or three times a day, actually that reduces the absorption. So it doesn't really help to give more iron. It just causes more side effects and more problems. So, but if she's tolerating it, what is the maximum frequency in which you can take iron in one day? Yeah, I don't know the correct answer. I don't think there is an upper limit because... The absorption is itself limiting, so it's not going to be absorbed a lot if you give a lot. That's the problem. The problem is not enough iron, and you know that's what we are dealing with most of the time, problems with low iron. You know, what are the places in the body that iron could be stored? You know, like, you know, once it gets absorbed eventually, where can we store the iron so that for a pregnant woman, when we need it, we can start bringing it out of the stores? Well, you know, the body is a remarkable thing. Uh, it has its own system. So iron is mostly stored in the bone marrow, inside the bones. I mean, the body knows, you know, when to get it and how to get it. If there is more iron or excessive iron, then it can be stored in different organs like liver, lungs, heart, which is not a good thing, where it causes actually more damage because it makes the those tissues more stiff and hard and more difficult to function. So it can actually cause cirrhosis, it can actually cause heart failure, it can cause lung fibrosis and difficulty breathing. 
So excessive iron is not good, but that's an altogether different issue. So what is that number? If a woman were to go to her primary care doctor, her OBGYN, and they check the hemoglobin, which is a test that we use to check for the, I guess, iron levels, what is that number that a woman should be comfortable with? So I think it depends on the lab that's being used because the reference ranges are different for each lab. But in generally, general terms, you can say about 12 grams of hemoglobin is normal for a woman. And if it's a little bit low, maybe 11 or so, I don't think that's going to cause many problems. But the lower it gets or the worse the anemia is, the more problems you can expect. And I think, especially in a pregnant woman, if you can bring it up and make it normal, that's helpful not only to the mother but also to the baby because the mother has to support herself, her baby, and also the placenta, which all of these, the baby and the placenta are growing, especially in the second and third trimester. Now, there's this concept of, you know, blood salvage, because there's a group of people like Jehovah's Witnesses that will not accept blood. And some people have talked about even giving their own blood when their blood level is very good, so that whenever their blood level is low, this can be transfused in a process called autotransfusion back to them. Is this possible in a pregnant woman? And can you explain this process to us for some people that will absolutely receive no blood like Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, that brings in a unique set of circumstances and issues. As far as autotransfusion, it's not something that comes into play very often. Because if the woman has enough blood to be able to donate blood for her own use later on, then she may likely not need that blood unless she has some bleeding disorder that she's expected to lose more blood. But in a normal setting, just to correct the anemia, that likely is not a practical situation where she can donate her own blood to her own body. So, but what what are some of the things that we can do if we come like with a Jehovah's Witness that has severe anemia and, you know, they want no blood or blood products and we want to respect their wishes? So again, depending on the underlying cause, again, the most common cause will be low iron. So that needs to be replaced. And uh, the faster it can be replaced, the better the body can utilize it and correct the situation. Or if there is any other problem like low vitamin B12 or low folic acid or if, you know, whatever the reason is, if the cells are being destroyed more, more than normal, then that needs to be corrected. Sometimes you can use a drug such as Procrate, that's a erythropoietin that stimulates the production of red blood cells in the body. And that's used more commonly in people who have kidney damage where their own erythropoietin level is low. So that can be helpful as well. So, you know, PICA, P-I-C-A, was first used as a term for a perverted craving for substances unfit to be used as food by Ambrose Paré between 1509 and 1590. PICA is a medieval Latin name for the bird called the magpie who, it is claimed, has a penchant for eating almost anything. 
When we say a person or a woman is suffering from pica, we are really calling them a magpie. What is this pica phenomenon? Yeah, as you referred, you know, pica is a term that is used to describe a craving or a desire of the person to eat certain products which have no nutritional value. Now, this could be ice, this could be chalk, this could be mud, this could be sand, which we normally don't eat. And somehow when there is low iron in the body, these dynamics change and the person develops a craving for these kind of non-nutrition materials. As far as what causes pica, that's really not clear. Uh, it's not well understood what makes a person start craving for mud or chalk. Or ice. Or right. ice, yeah. yeah. You know, talking about all these elements, if you cook in iron pots... Cast iron pots, yeah. Yes. Does that increase the iron that you ingest somehow using cast iron pots? Yes, it, it actually does. But, you know, it's very small amount, very minimal amount. But yes, if you cook in uh, cast iron pans, then there is some leaching of iron from the pot into the food. And especially if you're cooking something more acidic, then that will increase that amount of iron. But again, it's very small amount. So we do have some medical students that rotate with us. And this question is from third year medical student, Joseph Levy. And his question that he wanted to ask you was that, what supplements are most important for my blood production while I am pregnant? So that's one of his questions. And I'll give you that first. Like, What are the supplements that are most important for my blood production when I'm pregnant? So just a general prenatal vitamin is important. There's no such products actually that will make you make more blood unless there is a deficiency of a particular nutrient. For example, if it's B12 or folic acid or iron, then foods or supplements rich in those Elements will make your blood better, will make your hemoglobin better. But overall, in general, if your hemoglobin is normal, then, you know, nothing more needs to be done. And nowadays, you know, we use anti-clotting medications like aspirin a lot in pregnant women that have indications and they have risk factors. How does aspirin work? Well, the aspirin works in the platelets. Now, their platelets are very small particles in the blood. And what platelets do is they form a plug or a network when there is a bleeding or a cut. And that's when they come into play and sort of plug the hole and stop the bleeding. Now, aspirin works against these platelets in plugging together or coming together. So that's how it works like an anti-clotting drug. And it can be bad for the body. You know, if the body bleeds, then that can be made worse with aspirin. And the effect actually lasts for the duration of the life of the platelet, which is two, three days. So the effects can last for five to seven days. On the other side, if you have a problem where you're, where the blood is clotting too much, then aspirin can be helpful in reducing this aggregation or coming together, plugging of the platelets. So yeah, we, we do have a low a new indication that we use low-dose aspirin, like 81 milligrams, less than the usual dose. 
at times in patients that we think might even have things like preeclampsia, just to help that condition in pregnancy. One of the other questions he had, which is a little bit away from pregnancy, he brought in the concept of the von Willebrand disease which, you know, we do make a diagnosis of that. And I just want you to maybe just explain what that is to us in layman's terms. And he says, you know, what birth control options are appropriate for me if I have von Willebrand's disease? Yeah, so the von Willebrand's disease is an inherited disorder. It makes the person more susceptible to bleeding. And there is a different levels of von Willebrand disease spectrum. If it's a severe problem, then of course that gets very complicated. But fortunately, most of the time, von Willebrand is not severe. It's a mild problem with excessive bleeding or bleeding easily or bruising without any injury or trauma. Now, as far as using oral contraceptives, the estrogens and the pregnancy actually improves the von Willebrand factor. So, any oral contraceptives that have estrogen would be helpful in use in this condition. And that is, of course, outside of pregnancy. You know, we suspect von Willebrand disease when we see like a, a young person, they start their period and that first period is just heavy. What are some of the symptoms? What, what will a young person manifest to make us suspect that they might have a diagnosis of von Willebrand disease? Yeah, so the common symptoms would be like when they brush their teeth and they see some oozing of blood, if they have frequent nosebleeds, if they notice any bruises on their body, if they see any what is called petechiae, any red spots on the skin or the mucous membranes, and of course, as you mentioned, excessive menstrual blood flow. That would be things to bring von Willebrand's disease into the diagnosis and is inherited. So... If their parents, one of their parents has this disorder, that would also point to this diagnosis. And he now circled in to bring in the issue of sickle cell disease, which is a big issue. And I know in my career, I've had pregnant women with sickle cell disease. They come with even bone pain, you know. At times, women have a little bit of aches and pains here and there in pregnancy. But they have things like severe achy bones. At times they have chest pain. They really look pale, you know, and at times the white of the eye is yellow. Can you just maybe just explain to us sickle cell disease, how you get it and how you can make a diagnosis? Yes, so sickle cell disease is a very important diagnosis and it's very significant issue for people who are living with sickle cell disease because it's a lifelong problems one after another. Fortunately, there are some new treatments coming out and maybe even some genetic modifications that will hopefully can cure this condition and prevent a lot of complications that come from sickle cell disease. So in sickle cell disease, what happens is there is a mutation in the red blood cell and the cells are not shaped normally. The normal red blood cells are kind of a discoid-shaped cells, whereas in sickle cell, if they become hypoxic, if the oxygen level goes down even slightly, then they become take the shape of a sickle. And that's where the name comes from, a sickle cell. When the shape changes, 
in a sickle cell shape, then it doesn't flow as normal as a normal blood cell and the cells can deposit or clog up in one place because they are not able to flow. And when that happens, then there is no blood flow and the tissue gets hypoxic and ischemic and can die off and it causes severe pain. And this sickle cell, the group of sickle cells is like a clot which stays in there and it can go like a clot, like a ball and cause problems for the dog. Then moreover, these cells are destroyed easily because they are not the right shape and the body wants to get rid of cells that are not normal. So that causes hemolysis and that's when the eye and the white of the eye turns yellow, the urine can turn dark yellow. That's how they have severe pain attacks. So the hemolysis is just a destruction of the red cells releasing pigments that cause yellow eyes, jaundice or dark urine. And then, you know, usually there's a genetic, you know, the the parents, there might be traits of sickle cell in the parents. And this is common in a particular subset of people. Yeah, it's it's particularly common in African-American population. The origin of sickle cell was in Africa. And they have done some studies and trying to figure out the origin of sickle cell. And they were actually able to pinpoint the time in history when the first sickle cell (laughs) came into existence. And I don't remember the exact year, but somewhere around Cameroon area of Africa. And the thinking was to fight against uh, malaria because the people with sickle cell, they don't get malaria as easily as non-sickle cell. To make the diagnosis, they have to see a specialist like you, Yeah, making the diagnosis is not that difficult. You can just do a simple blood test. It's called hemoglobin electrophoresis, where you check out the different components of the different types of hemoglobin that's there. And the diagnosis is relatively easy. Now, the sickle cell can be sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait. So if you get the abnormal gene just from one parent, you will get sickle cell trait, which is a milder form of sickle cell disease. And most of the time, these people don't get severe pain attacks or frequent pain attacks. And the anemia is not significant. And most of them are able to carry on a normal life expectancy. But if it is sickle cell disease, where they get the defective gene, one from each parent, then that's the severe form and that's the more, that's the condition that causes more medical problems. You know, just in treatment, you did mention that hopefully there might be a cure. That is big, you know, coming up in the future, you know, just from genetic manipulations. Yeah, they are able to replace that particular area of defect in the gene with a, it's not normal gene, but it's a gene that doesn't sickle. So that can be a cure. And actually that's being done in on a trial basis that genetic modification is being done in human beings right now. And it's not approved yet, but hopefully it will soon be approved and available. 